as Joe said, we're looking at, at the book of Exodus. Um, so earlier this year, we preached through the book of, of Genesis. Um, and we saw that in, in Genesis, God creates a, a perfect world, which is then spoiled by human sin. And this sin affects our, our relationships. It affects um, the way we interact within our families. It breaks families up. It, um, it, causes, it causes violence and ab- abuse all across the world. Um, and we saw that in, in Genesis chapter 12, God's response to this is basically to call out a guy called Abraham, um, who is, is not someone who worships God. He worships lots of different gods. And he calls out this guy, Abraham, who at this stage is an old man. His wife is, um, is not able to conceive. And he says, listen, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. You are going to be the father of a, of a mighty nation, of people um, who are going to be too numerous to count, like the stars in the sky. And through um, your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. Um, and we saw that at the end of Genesis, the family of Abraham, Abraham's now long dead, but the family has grown to about 70 people, and they are now in the land of Egypt, sheltering from a famine. And then where Joe picked up at the beginning of Exodus, even though you're just turning a page in, in your, your paper Bibles, um, actually 400 years have passed. Um, and so it's not the case anymore that the Israelites uh, are 70 people, but they number now hundreds of thousands of people and they are slaves. Um, and then they are calling out, crying out for God and God has heard them. Um, and then the story picks up with this man, Moses, who's a, a Hebrew, an Israelite who grows up in Pharaoh's household. Um, and then at about the age of 40 commits murder of an Egyptian slave driver and has to flee to a, a place called Midian where he marries and, and becomes a shepherd. Um, and we are picking up the story then about another 40 years later. So each, um, Moses at this point, contrary to how I picture Moses, I don't know about you, is always how he's pictured in um, Moses, Prince of Egypt, which personally I think is one of the greatest films that has ever been made. I love it. Um, but at this stage, he's an old man. He's, he's 80 years old-ish, um, still going strong as a shepherd, though. Um, and we're going to see today an incredible encounter that he has with God. It's incredible for, for Moses, it's incredible for the Israelites, and it's incredible for us today as well. Um, I, I find it curious that as human beings in the 21st century, where we are so, in many, like, so self-obsessed, like everything is about us, isn't it? It's about looking inside and, and how we're feeling and what is, how is life going for us and what are our preferences. I um, mean, this is just the air that we breathe. We're probably not even conscious of it. Like as, you know, as, as good Christians, we say like, no, we don't do that. Like we're very selfless people. And yet we are so self-obsessed still. And yet in a world where we try to make so much of ourselves, we have a curious desire and seeming need for transcendence. So by transcendence, I mean like the desire to to access something or to reach something that is greater than us, um, to be made, like, to feel small by something. It's the kind of the feeling that you get when you look at an incredible sunset. You're just like, wow, and you kind of just shrivel up, in a sense, of watching this beautiful sunset. Or, or when you see a, an incredible mountain, like you see pictures from the top of Everest, something like that. But we, um, we, we love transcendence. Like we, I think it's the reason why we watch films. Let's think about great film, Interstellar, which I want to watch again. Um, just so many like incredible scenes of like planets and the music and you just kind of get this like wow I'm not 100% sure what's happening but I know that this feels kind of slightly out of body or stories like like the Lord of the Rings just we kind of get lost in the epic nature um, of these music whether it's classical or drum and bass like we use music to kind of to escape out of ourselves to get lost in the music in some ways 
Um, we do it with, with people, like Erling Haaland, right? Manchester City striker, scored like about 87 goals in about four games this season, something like that. But the, the other thing we do with people like this is we, kind of, we, we run out of, super, we say superlatives, and we say incredible, stunning, breathtaking, and we're getting this feeling of transcendence, of being made to feel small by something or someone. And of course, as Christians, there is quite an obvious reason for why it is that we want this sense of transcendence in our lives, and it's because we're made by an infinite, holy God. We're made by a God to have relationship with him. And when we turn away and we do things our own way, we're left with this longing of, oh God, I just want to be made small by something because we are small and we don't look for it in the God of the universe, which is where we're supposed to find this feeling of, wow, this is incredible. This makes every, everything else in my life seem to drift into insignificance. It's like in the, the hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Um, we get the privilege this morning of coming to look at the amazing, awesome, holy God of the Bible and to be changed. Like, there is nothing greater that we can give our lives to um, than, than studying what God is, is like. I was writing part of this preach in um, Aldingbourne Country Centre Cafe, and I was writing in my notebook, just making some notes on the, the preach, while Karis and Paul were, were going and enjoying Aldingbourne. I wasn't just, that wasn't the place that I just picked to write my preach. But I wrote at the top, I just had this sudden like, thought, and I wrote it at the top of my notebook, and I said, like, how incredible it is to be able to spend time thinking about the Bible and thinking about God. Like, what, what better use of time is there just to contemplate our glorious God? And Charles Spurgeon said it slightly more eloquent than me. He said, the proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom they call Father. What an amazing quote, slightly better than my note in the top of my notebook and so this morning we've got an invitation to come and gaze at who God is and to know who he is with Moses with the Israelites and we're going to find that actually knowing the character and the nature of the God is 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 the peace in our storms it is the fuel for our worship it's the joy and the purpose in our lives and as we read about God as we unpack who God is unveiling himself to be, revealing himself to be, my hope is that our hearts will just get excited about God this morning. Maybe we're coming in and actually we are feeling dry and I feel like God just with, his, with the Holy Spirit, as Emma was saying, just wants to come and reveal himself to us afresh. So if you want to open your Bibles up, we're in Exodus 3 verses 1 to 15. Perhaps Martin, if you can click along. Say that again. I think it's down here. Yeah, just one I'm reading. If you could do those couple, that would be helpful. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then God said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and the name you shall call me from generation to generation. There's two things that I think God is revealing to us about himself in this passage, amongst many other things. We could write, do a whole preaching series for about 17 years, I think, based on these 15 verses. Um, Two things that I think God wants to tell us about himself. One, he is the holy God, and two, he is the gospel God. The holy God, the gospel God. That's where we're going this morning. Um, so let's start with the holy God. When we're talking about God's holiness, a word which we, we use, we've been sung a number of times this morning. It's all throughout the Bible as well. Um, it's important just to note what we mean when we call God holy. So holiness has kind of got different like facets to it. One part of it is talking about God's God's purity or God's moral purity. So all of us, despite our best efforts, we have every single day, every single hour, we do wrong things, we say wrong things, we think wrong things, we feel wrong things. And yet God, in all of his being, never has any wrong thoughts, any wrong feelings, any wrong actions, any says any wrong things. He never makes promises and goes back on them. He never does anything evil or or wrong. And actually, it's not even possible for him to do those things. That is how holy and pure God is in himself. It's like, it's not even, hey, it's just because he's keeping himself straight on the right way. It's like, it's not even fathomable that he could even have a sinful thought or come anywhere near something sinful. And because of this purity that God's got, it also means that God is, is beautiful. There is an utter beauty to God. Any beautiness that we, uh, beautiness, beauty, <laughs> that we have, like outside or inside, is just a, an echo or a shadow of, of the beauty that God has. He is utterly beautiful. He's, we look at a beautiful painting or a beautiful person or we watch a, a beautiful piece of film work, something like that, see a beautiful sunset. All we're just seeing is just a, a glimpse of the utter beauty of, of God and his purity and his holiness. And because he's utterly pure and he's utterly beautiful, he's also in his holiness, utterly set apart from us. If we were going to make two categories, like the simplest way that we could categorize everything in the world, because there's silly ways that you can do it. You could be people who love Oreos and people who don't love Oreos, and then everyone's in one of those two groups, presumably. Um, but the simplest way to categorize the world would be like, well, over this side we've got God, and then we have everything that is not God. And that is God's holiness, his set-apartness. There is nothing that he is... Is, is like or can ever come close to, 
comparing to him. And holiness in the Bible is a massive theme. God is often called the Holy One of Israel. Um, In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this incredible vision of God in his temple. And there are these seraphim who are flying around God in this vision. And what are they singing? They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What we are going to be singing into all of eternity is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it's a key theme in Exodus as well. In Exodus 15, when God has, has defeated the Egyptians in the Red Sea, the, um, Moses and the Israelites are going to come out and they're going to sing a song, which we'll get to in, in time. And in that song, they sing, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? In Exodus 26, God is going to give the Israelites the Um, the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, this tent where he is going to come and he's going to dwell among them. And the most significant place of the tabernacle is the place where God's presence is most keenly felt. And that is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And actually God's holiness is all over this passage as well. Even though the word is not used to describe God himself, actually at all during the book of Exodus, which is interesting, every time that the word holy is used, It's used to refer to either people or places or things which God has declared to be holy, even though God's holiness is seen all throughout it. So here's some ways that we see God's holiness revealed in this passage. We see it in the mountain. Like Mountains are so significant in the Bible. Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis on a mountain. The Israelites are going to come and worship God at this same mountain, Mount Horeb. It's also called Mount Sinai. Jesus is transfigured in the Gospels on a mountain. Mountains are places where we come um, and see in the Bible people meeting with God. God's presence coming and descending and meeting with his people. And actually, what, a, what, a, what better way of showing how holy God is than through a mountain? Like these, these massive structures, like compare yourself to a mountain and realize how insignificant it makes you, makes you feel. Like you see this incredible mountain, these, these huge great masses of stone and, and earth. And yet these mountains are the places where God often chooses to meet people with the Bible, in the Bible because I think it communicates something of his holiness, something of like, you're impressed by this mountain, like you have not seen anything yet. You have not seen anything of the holiness of God, even by looking and studying these incredible mountains. We see it um, in the fire as well. So if we go back to Exodus 3, uh, it says, they're the angel of the Lord, which the angel of the Lord is kind of, identified with God. So it could be basically the same way as saying that God is is meeting with Moses. Appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the uh, the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses goes and has a look at this bush. Oh, fire, what an incredible way of picturing God's holiness. So in, um, you might have been uh, like a bonfire night thing yesterday or going to do fireworks. At my, um, my parents' house, there's a little outside kind of patio in in the back garden we often sit in the summer and we sit around this little grate and my dad starts a fire and cooks barbecue stuff and we sit together and we talk and the thing about fire and the incredible way that it shows God's holiness is fire is something I first saw this from from Andrew Wilson fire is something which is very fearful and and fear-inducing and untamed isn't it like we can't get too close to fire because we know that we're going to be burnt. There's something about it which wards us off, which makes us go, this is not something to be trifled with. And it's the same with God. Like we see with God, God is not someone who we can just you know, take for, for granted or treat as insignificant. And actually fire is also then something which draws us in. We want to get closer. 
in the coldness of our lives. We want to draw close to a fire in the same way that God's holiness, kind of we look and we go, well, that is, that is fear-inducing in a, in a good way or inspiring. It gives us this transcendence when we see God's holiness, and yet he also draws us in to find warmth and love and tenderness with him. We also see God's holiness shown in the command that he gives to Moses. So in verse 4 and 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Um, And in this command as well, God is is saying, Look, the place where you are is, is holy. Actually, let's be honest, it's a mountain, all right? It's, it's rocks and it's dirt. And yet he's saying it's holy because God is there. The presence of God is here. Actually, this also presents for us the problem in the same way that God says, listen, you need to take off your shoes because this is a, a holy place, which for lots of us in, in Great Britain today might not seem to make kind of a lot of sense, but in lots of other cultures in the world, taking shoes off is just something that you do very obviously to show a great deal of respect you know, we go into someone's house and they might say, oh, don't worry about your shoes, something like that. You just don't do that in some parts of the world today. Isaiah, when he, Moses realizes that he, that he needs to, to, he can't just come as he is. He recognizes his sin, his dirtiness that he catches with him. Isaiah, when he has his vision of God and sees God in his holiness, he says, woe on me, I'm a person of unclean lips. And perhaps this is most seen in, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle where God dwells, um, where the, the only person who's allowed into the Holy of Holies is the high priest, and that's once a year. It's clear like you can't just waltz in to the presence of God. Now, we, we know that in Jesus, this has changed greatly for us, as we'll see now, because actually we see in God declaring this ground to be holy, and all through the book of Exodus, we'll see that God is a, a holy God who declares other things and other people to be holy as well. Um, And actually, we can rejoice, as we'll see later, that God has overcome our lack of holiness, our sinfulness, the fact that we every day think wrong things, feel wrong things, do wrong things, say wrong things. We can't come before a holy God. We should say with Isaiah, when we see God in his holiness, "Woe, woe is me. And yet, God in Jesus has overcome our lack of holiness. Jesus is our great high priest who's gone into the holy of holies for us to to intercede and to take us with him. When Jesus dies, that temple curtain that would have separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple is torn apart. It's God saying, look, I have removed the obstacles for you to come into my presence God in Jesus has made us holy. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Ephesians 1.14 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Like how often do we count ourselves out of coming to spend time with God in our day by day, week by week? Either coming to church, we count ourselves out of worship, or we count ourselves out of spending time in God's word or talking to him about how we're feeling over the course of our days. And actually, it's because of a sense of that unworthiness within us that I can't come to God. And yet, actually, God has made the declaration over those of us who are in Christ, you are holy and blameless. You are welcome to come into my presence. You are welcome to draw near to me. You, you can come into the Holy of Holies through the great high priest Jesus who takes you into his presence. What a thing to remember when you 
this week are, are thinking about God, taking time to pray. Say, actually, the, my basis of being able to pray is not my own holiness. It is the holiness that God has given to me through Jesus. We can now approach God. But actually, we see like the ultimate revelation of God's holiness in his name. So if we then go to verse 13, Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, names are a funny thing because in, in the UK, we don't tend to, lots of us, associate particular significance to our name. So I know what my name means. My name means gift from God. And there are particular reasons that my, my parents called me Jonathan specifically, which I think is a great name, like gift from God, like what a, what a meaning for a name if you're going to have one. Joseph means um, he will add, or God will add. Louise, mighty warrior. Yes. Some great names. But actually lots of us might just have names because our parents liked the sound of them. Whereas in the Bible, and lots of other cultures in the world today as well, actually names are, are incredibly significant because they're not just something that you call someone. Okay, so it's not just like, oh, I'll call you Jonathan, because that's just like gets your attention. But actually, when Moses says, what is your name? What he's really asking God is, is who are you? What is your identity? What's your character? So he's less asking like, well, if I go back to the Israelites and I say, oh, all right, God, God sent me to you. And they go like, oh, right, what's his name? They're not, it seems a bit silly. He's not looking for like, a, this is what you should call him. It is, they're asking, what's he like? Tell us about this God who you have met on Mount Horeb. Um, and he's asking for his character. Perhaps it's also important to think that Moses and the Israelites have been living for 400 years in a, a polytheistic culture, a culture which worships many gods. And so they, they know about Nut, the goddess of the sky. They know about Ra, the god of the sun, and Osiris, the god of life and vegetation. And so Moses is coming to God and he's saying, well, God, who are you? Like, what do you like? What should I go and tell them? You are the god of... And God says, I am who I am. That is my name. I am has sent me to you. And this is just staggering. Like, it, it, it's mind-blowing. You can't get your head around what it means for God to be, I am who I am. It's, like, it's utterly breathtaking. We're all defined in relationship to something. So I'm Jonathan, a gift from God. Okay? We are all products of our parents. We're all created from someone. And yet the only way that God can define himself is saying, I am me. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. I just exist as God. You want to know who I am? I'm God. And this reveals just some utterly, incredibly holy ways in which God is different to us. It reveals that he is he's self-existent. He is independent. We all depend on so much. We need food. We need water. We need sleep and, and lots of other things in order to get by. God is the God who does not need anything anything at all. He doesn't need to rest. All the time that we are sleeping, God is doing, being God, not needing to rest. Actually, and that is just breathtaking because then we think about God is the one who supplies all of our needs. That should motivate us to come to him and pray and give us today our daily bread and trust that God is the one who loves to provide for his children. Um, sleep as well. It's funny to think about how much of our existence on earth we spend not conscious just like resting in order to be able to get up and go again. Um, and an author says one of my probably favorite quotes that I've ever heard in a book. He says, sleep is God's daily reminder that God is God and you are not. 
Actually, when we go to sleep, we're like, it should be fully conscious. God never does this. We go to sleep and we're reminded, actually, God is the God who doesn't rest. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't need to eat or drink or sustain himself. He is completely unlike us. He is who he is. He's also, second, uncreated and eternal. We all came from somewhere. Um, and perhaps for, for some of us, if we've had health scares or I imagine if we are, are older, we probably have more of a sense of the, the finiteness of our life than perhaps someone who's in their mid-twenties might do. And tend to, I think, lots of us probably think, we don't really think about this. We know at some point that we will die. We will not be here. But actually, we probably tend to think, oh, just, I'm going to go on forever. We don't really think realistically there's going to be a time where I'm going to stop being. Actually, we are just a, we're just a, pff. we come and we're gone and we're just a, a glimpse, like a, just a, a moment in all of human history. And yet God is the one who is uncreated, who always was, who always will be, who is utterly eternal. Even to talk about him being timeless is ridiculous because time has no application to him. Time is something that he spoke into existence. He just thought, I'm going to make time. And this time was something that he made. It doesn't apply to him. He's outside of time. Third, it means that God is unchanging. Who he is is who he is. Who he will be is who he will be. We all make promises and we don't go through with those promises. We are constantly changing every day. We're shedding cells and replenishing those cells. Um, We are going to be different people 20 years from now or 10 years from now or two days from now that we will be today. And yet God is the one who always has and always will be himself. He is utterly unchanging. In 2,000 years' time, if Jesus hasn't come back by then, God will still be utterly the same God that Christians are worshipping then than he is today. And finally, it means that he's, he's infinite. He's unlimited. We've been, um, over the last year, it's been a good year for sport, the last couple of years. And um, so in the, in the summer, we enjoyed watching the Commonwealth Games and the European um, Athletics Championships as well. This week, we've been watching some of the... Um, it's the, the World Athletic, no, the World Gymnastics finals in, in Liverpool. Has anyone seen any of that? It's been really good, right? To be honest, you should watch it. It's breathtaking to watch these, like, these gymnasts. You just watch, and I'm like, I could barely do a roly-poly, and these people are like just absolutely stunning gymnasts doing things with the human body that you didn't think was possible. If you think about like the best long jumper who can jump, and then they, oh, they go, wow, right over there, and you're just like, how can they jump that far? It's like, how ridiculous is that compared to God's infiniteness, his unlimitedness? Like, talking about God's jump, like, he is present everywhere. It's like, God is the God who is. It's, he's absolutely unlimited. There is no restrictions on his power. We're watching these incredible gymnasts. It should also show us, wow, yeah, God has created human beings to do amazing things. And also, aren't human beings incredibly limited? That we look at people doing cartwheels and flips and turns, and yet God is the God who is not restricted by any body. And I think just a a couple of ways that we should respond to this holy God. I think we should ask ourselves, has God become overly familiar with us? Have we got to the point where actually, like, we, we have the right as children of God to be familiar with God in the sense of he is family. He is our father. We are his children. We can have that intimacy. And yet, perhaps sometimes we can become, have this over-familiarness where God's holiness, God's uniqueness, his I, I am who I am-ness ceases to amaze us. And I think there's probably a few ways that we, we stop seeing God in all of his awesomeness, in all of his wonder, in all of his holiness, Perhaps a sign that we've become over-familiar with God's holiness is just a lack of awe and wonder at who he is and an 
our lives, if our worship feels kind of stale and, and lacking, I wonder when you last experienced that awe and wonder at God. Maybe it was during the worship this morning. Maybe it feels like it hasn't been for a long time or perhaps ever. And actually, we need awe. Incredible verse in Jeremiah 2.19. God is speaking to the Israelites. He says, Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me. So what he's saying is, listen, if you've not got awe and wonder of me in your life, he says this, it is evil and bitter for you. Like we are created to have awe and wonder at God and this should change how we do our lives day by day. When I got that feeling of awe and wonder at God, God I just want to think about you and I was sitting in the Oldingbourne Cafe. I know that for me, if I'm going to get that awe and wonder, often that is spent in God's word or it's spent on a day like yesterday at the, the discipleship course or um, doing like some theology training, sitting and just wondering at God. And I feel so excited and I just can't wait to get to church and worship the next day. What is it that creates that feeling in you? And if uh, Alice, that's going to the beach and she loves to go and spend time at the beach and that's where she gets awe and wonder at God. What is it for you? Is it, is it singing in your own home? Is it putting on worship music and just letting yourself focus on God? Is it taking time to spend time in prayer? Is it making sure that you've, you've got time, that you can chisel that time where you're not just rushed to spend some time in the Word, but you can really think about it, you can write about it, you can pray about it? Is it taking time to go out in the woods or to go for a long walk or to get time on your own or to be time with family? Ultimately, we need to think of those things. Think, what is it that is going to help me to feel that awe and wonder at God again and get that in your life? Because it is evil and bitter for you to not feel that awe at God. I think another sign that we've become over-familiar with God's holiness is if we are experiencing a lot of pride. And we potentially are aware of pride manifesting itself in our lives in different ways. But pride is basically the... The, the feeling that we are at the center of the universe, not God. That actually things are about us. When we feel particularly aggrieved at the way that people treat us, it, it could be a sign of pride. When we're coming and we're very, just being very self-aware, like we're constantly thinking about ourselves on a Sunday morning, or are people watching me if I do that, or what will people think of me if I come and I give this word? Those are all signs of pride in our lives, and it's a sign that we are not giving God the honor and the worship that he deserves as our holy God. Actually, the thing which Moses does when God reveals his name, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is he hides his face. Isaiah falls down, says, woe is me. Ezekiel, when he sees a vision of God, falls to the ground. John, in Revelation, when he sees vision of Jesus, falls to the ground. There should be a sense that when we come to meet with God, um, that we find it to be a humbling experience. We need to get that awe and wonder of God because as, as God increases, we will find that we naturally decrease. We need to, uh, Charles Spurgeon says as well, that there's nothing more humbling than to contemplate God because the more you know, the more you realize the unfathomableness of what you, you don't know. You realize that you can't say, hey, I'm, I'm an expert, an expert on God. Like, no one gets to that point. We're going to spend all of eternity trying to become experts and keeping going and going and going and knowing our wonderful Father. Another sign, I think, that God has become overly familiar to us in his holiness is if we've got a lot of fear. You know, Moses um, is clearly a very fearful person. He runs after looking this way and that and burying the Egyptian slave driver in the ground. He then runs and, and flees and He's a very fearful person. 
There are five times in Exodus 3 and 4 where Moses kind of pushes back against God. He, he asks, who am I? Who are you? What if they don't believe me? But I can't speak. Can you send someone else? And we think, experience so much fear in our lives, don't, don't we? So much fear, so much worry. And actually fear reveals a lot about what we love. Because actually if we fear what happens to our family, then it might be an indicator that we have started to elevate our family above God, that things are out of place. Actually, if we fear us not doing a, a great talk or playing in the worship band well, or if we worry that we're going to mess up at work, then perhaps it shows that we have got a love for how people see us in a way that has elevated itself above our love for God. Here's what we need. When God comes to Moses and Moses asks these five questions, God does not reassure him. He doesn't say, you are so talented, Moses. Like, I've picked you out because you're so clever. You're such a good leader. Like, you are going to be amazing at this. I believe in you. Go for it. He doesn't say that. He doesn't affirm his leadership qualities or give a reminder of his calling. God says, I will be with you. And if we are experiencing fear this morning and worry, perhaps we need to hear the words of God to us. He is the great, I am who I am. And he says, and I will be with you. See, what we need if we're experiencing fear is to contemplate more of the holiness, the wonder of God, and recognize that we can just enjoy his, his fatherly presence with us wherever we are going, whether we're doing that at work or that's fears in the home or fears about what will happen in the future or fears about our bodies or our kids. We need to say, God, you are the one that I want most of all. And that all of our fears lose themselves in our, in our wonderful, loving fear and trembling at the holiness of God. God is a, a holy God. And second, we also see that God is a, a gospel God. God is a good news God. Actually, we see the incredible heart of God, that he is not simply holy, and set apart in a sense which we can't obtain him, but actually he has made himself accessible to us because he's also holy in his grace and in his love and in his mercy. We see incredibly in these verses that God is a God of relationship. Like it's staggering even to think that I am who I am would create a world full of human beings like us. And it's even more crazy to think that he would then seek relationship with us, both as a people and individually. That's amazing. An amazing quote from Alec Motyer in his commentary. He says, God bothered with Moses. That in itself is a marvelous truth. Like God this morning bothers with you and so much more. He is seeking relationship with all of us this morning. And God is also a, a God of compassion. So in verse 7, um, God he is starting to talk to Moses. He says, I said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the ways the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now, we just need to see the ways that God is talking about the suffering of the Israelites. Okay, The Israelites, the rest of the Bible does not go well for them. They are not an amazing group of people, okay? They are really sinful, like us, okay? And yet he says, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about their suffering. 
And what an incredible thing for God to feel towards sinful human beings who are so prone to reject him. And he says, your suffering, all your, your tears, all your weeping, all of the pain which you're experiencing, Israelites, I've seen it, I've heard you, I'm concerned about you. And this isn't like a concern, like, oh, I'm slightly, slightly worried about what's going on over here. This is a concern which is propelling him to act on behalf of the Israelites and rescue them. And I feel like this morning we would need to hear in our suffering, in the, the battles, in the struggles, in the storms that we are going through, God say to us, I have seen your misery. I have heard you crying out. I am concerned about your suffering and so much more. This is also problematic in some ways because we could then ask the question, well, you know, the Israelites, they've seen their, their baby sons taken away from them and thrown into the Nile. They've seen families who don't have a dad at home because he's presumed, like, would presume has been killed by Egyptian slave drivers or, or something like that. There's incredible amounts of suffering and God in this 400 years is saying, I'm, I've seen it, I've, I've heard you, I'm concerned about you. And so much of the time when we're suffering, it can just feel like, God, where are you? Like, what are you doing? I know that you say you're, you're loving and you're kind and you're present with me and, and yet this is what I'm experiencing. What are you doing? We could talk about God's sovereignty. We could talk about God's purposes and plans for our suffering. Perhaps we need to hear God saying this morning is the thing which we cling to in all of our suffering. God, God sees us. He hears us. He's concerned about us. He moves towards us with compassion. Um. A wonderful verse in Isaiah 49, verse 15. God says this. He says, can a mother... um, He says, in fact, we'll go from verse 14. He says, but Zion, the Israelite, said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And God says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Like, what a wonderful picture of God's presence with us in our suffering. He says, we think about a a mother who is, who is breastfeeding. Think about just the, the sheer unlikelihood that she would forget about this, this, this baby that she is nurturing and caring for. And it's like, see that and multiply that by, by infinity. And now you've got my presence with you and my care for you. And God would want to say that to us this morning for those of us who are suffering. God has compassion on sufferers and he also has got compassion on sinners as well. We tend to sin frequently and they're often through the influence of the enemy, we tend to take this sin and make that want us to, re- to walk away from God. Say, God, you can't want anything to do with me. And yet the amazing thing is that the compassionate heart of God, when we sin, when we mess up yet again in that thing that we just can't seem to, to shake off, and parents on the discipleship course, there was a, a lot of sharing of the kind of things that we do that we're not particularly proud of in our parenting yesterday. Actually, and God with our sin says I, that it makes his heart want to come out to us and and envelop us and give us his mercy and his grace god is a compassionate god who has compassion on sufferers who has compassion on sinners and he is a very gracious god he is the god of grace he says i've come down to rescue the israelites from the hand of the egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land a land flowing with milk and honey God is our, our gracious rescuer. In um, the NIV Bible in one year this week, I've started on the book of Ezekiel, hence a couple of Ezekiel references so far in the preach. Um, and like, Ezekiel is pretty grim reading. Like, the faithfulness of God is there, but if you go through the prophetic books, like, man, the Israelites are awful. 
They are a terrible group of people. Um, if you're not familiar with the way the story of the Israelites goes from here, there's, there's ups and there's a whole lot of downs as well. And um, they fail constantly. They don't just mess up, but they are just a generally evil people. Um, so they are obscene in the way that they sin. They reject God. And eventually in 2 Kings 21, um, 2 Kings 21 will tell us that under King Manasseh, the Israelites did more evil than the nations which had inhabited the promised land before the Israelites. And these were people who, who murdered their children in, in child sacrifice. Um, they did not worship God or care anything about him. And the Israelites get to the point where it's like, they are worse than them, the people of God. And yet, God, in his omniscience, fully aware of all this, the ways that the Israelites are going to reject him and turn away from him and say, we don't care about you, and worse, he still saves them out of slavery in Egypt. He still rescues them. And this is sheer grace. It's, it's not because anything the Israelites have done. We know that they're going to be terrible screw-ups. God makes it clear in Deuteronomy 7 and, and chapter 7 and 9 that he has, he's not set his affection on them. He's not rescued them because of their size of a nation or because they're particularly passionate and zealous about God. It's just out of pure grace. He is, I am who I am, and he has rescued them because that is how his gracious heart has motivated him to act for, for their good and his glory. And it's the same for us. God has rescued us from our sin. And it's not because of anything that we have done. It is because of God's great grace for us. And it's also because it tells us about God's lavish grace. You know, you would think that it would be enough for these evil Israelites, that God would just take them out. He would say, right, you're not slaves anymore. You've been slaves for 400 years. There you go. Okay, but it doesn't. It then says, I will bring them up out of the land, verse 8, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's, he's not just giving them a land. He's not just saying, like, right, you're out of Egypt. Okay, don't go and, and screw it up anymore. He says, no, I'm going to bring you out into a great land, and you're going you're to build houses and, and have families and, and make art and craft. You're going to plant vineyards and feast together and enjoy life in my presence with me. I'm going to be there with you. What a wonderful thing he's called them up out to. And he, God was lavish in his grace to the Israelites three and a half thousand years ago. And he's lavish in his grace to us today. He doesn't just call us up out of our sin and say, right, okay, do the right thing now. But he's, he's welcomed us into his family. He has made us his adopted sons and daughters. He's set his affection on us. He literally gives us access into his presence any time, any place, with any needs that we have. He doesn't just say, oh, bring your needs to me if you need to, but he encourages us to do that. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burned. And it's the active encouragement of God that we would come to him when we feel full of sin, when we feel full of fear, when we feel weary and burdened, when we need rest. And Jesus' active invitation is, come to me, because I would love to give you that rest. We're going to be in heaven for eternity, worshipping a God full of joy because of his lavish grace on us. I think if the problem with God's holiness is we can sometimes become overly familiar with him, perhaps the problem with his grace is that we cannot count on it and lean on it enough. That perhaps the question would be to you, does, does God seem far away this morning? And actually, if God seems far away and it seems like he would have nothing to do with us, we need to, to know more of his grace, his intimacy, his presence with us this morning. Just finally, and um, Lou um, and Steve, you can come up. It also shows that God is the God of mission. Just really quickly, it's interesting that God 
says that he's got this plan to rescue the Israelites. Um, and it's then interesting to see him starting to outwork this plan with Moses. Because um, he says, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, verse 9, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Verse 10, So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. It's like he's got this, I've seen the suffering of my people. Something needs to be done about this suffering. And so what God does is he says, Moses, you're the one I'm sending. I'm sending you, Moses. And the thing is that we are a site based deliberately in heaven. We're not here by accident. It's not because there was a room free at Warblington School. We're here deliberately because we want to reach the people of heaven with the good news of God's lavish grace on them so that they can be rescued out of their, their enslavement to sin, their suffering and sin, and into the, the wonderful love and mercy and grace of God. And you know what? God says, hey, I've got great plans for heaven. I want to rescue people in heaven out of suffering and sin and he says to us grace church so now go i am sending you grace church heaven we are god's presence the people that he is sending to make known in our conversations with our our neighbors and in our workplaces and in our schools whatever we're doing to make god's grace known to people here to declare it and demonstrate it in the ways that we act let's not lose sight of the fact that we are here deliberately sent by god in the way that he sent Moses to reach these people. Now, I'm, we're going to draw to take communion now. And perhaps the biggest encouragement that I want to give us this morning is to take time this week to draw close to God through Jesus. Because he is an utterly holy God. We know that we need the awe and wonder of God in our lives if we are going to be able to, to get through, let alone thrive. And in Jesus, God has made the way for us to come boldly and confidently into his presence. Even now, as we come and as we take communion, perhaps you could take that as time to, to bring your, your fears, your worries, your concerns up to him to say, God, I, I need your help because that is help that he loves to give as I am who I am. In a couple of chapters time in Exodus, we're going to see how God is going to kill all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, the families in Egypt. And the thing that will save the eldest sons of the Israelites is that they will take a lamb and they will paint the blood of that lamb over their doorposts so that when the angel of death comes, they will see the blood and be satisfied and will pass over those homes. And as we come to take communion, we're coming to remember that an even greater lamb has been killed for us and that his blood is painted over us this morning that we can come and have relationship with him because where God appears to Moses in a just a small bush on Mount Sinai thousands of years thousand and a half year one and 1500 years later he's gonna be placed upon another bush another piece of wood across so that we can have intimacy with God our father and so we're gonna we're gonna stand now these guys are going to start praying. I'm just going to pray that God would help our, give us eyes to see as we've been praying for all of this morning, just spiritual eyes so that we can, we can know more of his holiness, more of his goodness to us. And then we're going to sing about God's greatness. And I'm just going to leave us to go over and get the bread and the wine ourselves. And we can take it in, in just in small groups and, and pray for one another if we'd like. And just enjoy the fact that we can come unburdened into God's presence or at least come with our burdens and lay those down to him.
I'm just going to pray for us and then we'll come in and eat and drink together. Father, we want to say sorry that we just do not take you as you are, that we fail to see you in all of your holiness, that you are, I am who I am, and yet we go around in our lives so afraid and so obsessed with ourselves, Father. Um, and we want to say that we're sorry and we thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. And we ask that as we come and as we take communion, you would be giving us eyes to, to see. We want to meet with you. We're hungry and thirsty for you. We thank you for sending your son to die for us so that we can enjoy your lavish grace, so that we can be your, your children. We're asking that you, what you've been working us this morning, you wouldn't now let us leave. We wouldn't just be leaving it here in this room, but taking it with us into our lives, knowing just the sheer awesomeness of having the God of the universe on our side, that you are for us. We ask that by your grace, for your great name, you would help us to meet with you this morning, Father. We love you. Amen.